Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. I am Lydia Finette, and I am so delighted to be here in Rockefeller Center. The plaza is packed, and I have the privilege and honor of sitting across from the incredible Carrie Ellen Phillips here in Newsstand Studio. So you're going to hear everything about Carrie Ellen Phillips. But first, a word from our sponsors. I am so delighted to have an absolute force of nature with me today. Carrie Ellen Phillips is a partner in a global strategic communications and consulting firm that she started called BPCM. She co-founded this with the amazing Vanessa von Bismarck in 1999. She has grown this into a global agency and now spearheads BPCM's flourishing sustainability and impact practice and has transformed it into the fastest growing part of the agency. But we have so much to dive into before that. So welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast, and I'm so excited to have a conversation today. Well, as you know, this is all about the confidence journey, and I know that you have had quite a journey. So let's start at the beginning. You have such an interesting childhood. So let's start there. Where did you grow up? Tell us about the early years, Gary. (laughs) Well, I am a Navy brat. My father was an officer in the U.S. Navy. He's a doctor. And When I was born, I was born in San Diego, and my dad was stationed on ships. He was on an aircraft carrier. He actually missed my brother's birth because he was somewhere like in Asia on a ship. He had to wait until he got to port to find out that my mom had 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 my brother. I feel like that's Um, such a Navy story. It's such a Navy story, and it's sort of one of those things like only other Navy brats understand. And when I was about six or seven, we moved to Okinawa, Japan. We stayed there for several years for elementary school, and that is where I think of doing my growing up. Okinawa is a tiny little island in the Ryukyu chain. It's famous for having been a part of World War II, and it was really interesting. My mother had also grown up as a Navy brat. Her father was an officer, and they moved a lot. And my mother was determined that if we were going to live somewhere, we were going to experience that culture. So you could either live on the military base with lots of other military families and just have this very kind of almost suburban upbringing, Mm -hmm. but in the middle of this incredibly rich culture, or you could live off the base and actually just be steeped in and live in that other culture. So my brother and I would play with Okinawan kids. We didn't speak their language. They didn't speak ours, but we had a great time together. We would explore the jungle. There's incredible nature there, incredible beaches. I really grew up with my hands in the dirt. And yeah, it seems so strange to anyone else. But to my brother and I, that that feels like what we picture as our growing up. As childhood. Yeah. It's amazing because I've always believed that travel is such an important Mm -hmm. part of becoming confident. Because Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, a lot of times you don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. Things feel unfamiliar. So were you confident growing up? Did you feel like when you arrived at the age of six, I have a six-year-old, so I can say she seems pretty confident to me a lot of the times, but did you feel when you arrived there, like you were unsure of who you were, or did you at that time arrive and just know that this was going to be a place you would love? And how long were you there? Oh, that is such an interesting question. Three or four years. 
you know, it's interesting at that age, I, you know, you don't have a lot of control over what you're going to do. Your parents are making that decision yeah. and you feel safe with your parents. So you think these, you know, you just assume like these are safe decisions and you get somewhere and I'm just trying to put myself back in like my childhood, you know, frame of state of mind. But I think I was pretty confident, but I think what you develop is intuition, mm-hmm. right? So you can't, you can't read the writing, you can't speak the language, but you can understand it. So you, it's amazing. Actually, it, it sort of like takes away a sense or gives you a second sense where you're intuiting the other person, mm-hmm. you're intuiting the situation. And I think that's actually something that I'm pretty good at and that has developed my confidence. Oh my God, Lydia, look what you just did. Like, I just, I just found <laughs> out about something about myself. Here you are. Uh, yeah, Locked here I am. Your confidence. Yeah. So no, I think that that actually is, was probably the first place where I learned to trust that intuition of situational intuition, I would say. And you mentioned, and we talked about this earlier, we both come from four kids and you have four kids as well. I have, now. Four, I have four kids and it's just my brother and I are just two, but but I have four kids. I love it. I'm so <laughs> jealous of the four kid number always. So at what point you moved back and where did you go next? So I would say the place where I started to not feel confident was we moved from Okinawa back to San Diego when I was in the sixth grade. So talk about like your most awkward time yeah. in life. <laughs> yeah, the camera I mean, braces. Yeah. Welcome to San Diego. <laughs> My feet were as big as they are now, and I was as tall as I am now in the sixth grade. I'm a pretty tall lady, and I was an awkward dresser. Girls in San Diego were interested in, like, boys and clothes and music, and I was like, I just like to be outside. And I, you know, I felt really weird, and I felt very othered, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so that actually was the first time I think that I really felt unconfident or that I realized there was a difference between how I operated in the world and then how other people might be looking at me. So interesting. Mm-hmm. When you came back to California, did you then become California in your sensibility? Like, did you become the California girl over time or did the things that you'd learned earlier on in your life stay with you throughout? I think I had a, maybe I developed a veneer of California. You know, I think, I think if you asked my mother, she would say like, we lived in Del Mar, we lived near the beach. You know, I had that kind of an upbringing. That was my middle school, high school experience. But I think if you asked my mother, she and my dad were East Coast people. And she said, Carrie was never going to stay here. Never going to stay. Never going to stay. I mean, I went to, I went to college in Virginia. I moved away when I was 18 and I never moved back. And you never moved back. Yeah. And so you went to Virginia. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in New York? A boy. Oh. Uh, my college boyfriend had moved to New York. I was working in Chicago for a couple of months and I like fell in love with Chicago and I really liked it. And he was like, wait, but we're together. You've got to move to New York. And I was like, okay. And one of my college roommates was like, I'll move too. And so it kind of all just happened. It was like a lucky accident. And when you were moving to New York, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do? Because you fell into what you've done naturally now for over two decades, very quickly, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. And so what did that look like? How did you become part of one of the largest PR companies in the world? And not only one of the largest, but the most incredibly well-respected that's continued to do amazing work in so many different areas and has continued to evolve in an ever-changing landscape. Thank you. That's a lovely thing to hear. I should probably have a better answer than all by accident. My mother's an author. She's a cookbook author, Diane Phillips, and she 
um, had been a spokesperson for Pepperidge Farm. And so when I was about to graduate college, I had no job, no prospects, and no idea what I was going to do because I had been a studio art major, studio art and creative writing major. So as my father said, what the hell are you going to do with that? And I really did not know. <laughs> but I think um, most parents would probably ask a similar question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a legitimate question after having paid for my education. So my mother said, the PR firm that handles Pepperidge Farm has is looking for people here. Call them. Go get a job. They will pay you. <laughs> they will pay you. And so that's what I did. And then my boss there, I said, hey, listen, I need to move to New York. And she said, well, I was going to give you like a full-time job here. And I was like, I got to go to New York. So she's like, okay, you go work at the firm that I came from. And so I did. And at that agency, I had been there for maybe a year. And then Vanessa, my now business partner came, who had never worked in PR before to be my intern. It's like a crazy turn of events. And we became fast friends. And we both realized that we didn't come from this way of doing communications, which at the time was very depersonalized. Mm -hmm. Nobody was thinking about how messages were landing with humans. People, and still people talk about audience and they talk about reach. Or reach. And how many people are you reaching? And I like to think of it as how many humans are you affecting? Mm -hmm. How many how many actual human beings are looking at what you're seeing and not just seeing it, but absorbing it and taking it on? That's a different thing. And that's what Vanessa and I were always interested in. We're both really interested in human beings in that way. And so when you fell into this PR job, was this something that you immediately loved and knew you were going to do forever? Or was it something you sort of thought was going to be a stop along a much larger career? Or did you even have that wherewithal at that age? I definitely didn't. I had done a lot of aid work over the years and I had lived in Zimbabwe. And when Vanessa and I first started the company, my name wasn't even in the company in the very beginning. It was just called Bismarck Media. <laughs> and I said to Vanessa, listen, I'm going to go back to Africa. That's my calling. I am supposed to help people. Mm -hmm. That's that's I'm supposed to help people. I'm supposed to do something with the environment. I know that that's kind of my calling. So I don't want you to be stuck with a company that has my name on it. I was like, I will help you. We will start this together. It's going to be great, but I'm not going to stick around. But then I'm going to leave you. <laughs> and like, she loves to still like joke around with me and be like, uh, you're, you're still here, you're right? Still you're here. still staying. You're still staying. Um, yeah. So tell me about starting the agency and what that initial conversation was like, because I love nothing more than the founder story and that moment <laughs> of, in, of sort of lightning striking. I remember when Jenny Fleiss was here speaking about Rent the Runway, you know, it was a conversation over lunch about a bridesmaid's dress that evolved into a company that disrupted the fashion industry. So what was that conversation like for you? And what is the first day of that? Are you sort of planting a flag and sitting in an empty office waiting for the phone to ring? <laughs> <laughs> It looks um, like maybe yes. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty good right one. <laughs> so Vanessa had said to me, I, I did not immediately say yes to let's start this company. She said, listen, I, I need a visa and the company we're at is not going to pay for my visa. And I just, I don't like that. I, th I think they should pay for my visa. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to set up a company and I'm going to get like, a, we'll set it up in Germany and that'll be a way to like get a visa here and we're going to start a company and that's how I get a visa. And I was like, I'm not starting a company. <laughs> like, I just got a promotion and I just got a raise. And she's like, yeah, yeah, but you don't like it here. I was like, I know. So I'll go find the next job. And the she goes, no, I'm telling you what the next job is. We're going to start a company together. I was like, Vanessa, we know nothing. We have no clients. We really have no business 
starting a company. That's something people do when they've had a career and then they branch out on their own. And she's like, no, 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 we're going to start a company. It's interesting. I feel like I'm already seeing the part that both of you play. Yes. <laughs> there's the person with their foot on the accelerator and then there's the person sort of thoughtfully creating the back end of yeah, all of this. Just, just like putting the rearview mirrors out and things like that. Yeah. So she goes back to Germany and I missed her. You know, I'm sitting in my cubicle mm-hmm. and I don't have her like peppering me with questions or talking to me and, you know, I don't have anybody to like go, you know, get lunch with or whatever. And I'm just like, I do, but it's not her. Yeah. And I realized how much I loved doing things with her. We're just two very in sync people. So she would call me every day and she'd be like, okay, what should we call the company? And I was like, I'm not going to do this. The next day she'd call. Okay, what do you want your business card to say? Like, <laughs> just what do you want your angles. title to be? True sales No, it was like, she goes, okay, I'm going to fax you what I think the logo should be. I was like, I'm literally at the company that you just left. Don't fax me anything. What are you doing? <laughs> we like to joke that Vanessa is hashtag relentless. And so she wore me down best way possible. I can't believe it's going to, next year, it's going to be 25 years wow. since we started it. So yeah, That's incredible. it was a good decision. All right, but give me the first day. <laughs> what are you guys doing? She comes back from Germany. She comes back from Germany and she says, okay, I've got us this one client. He's an artist and he needs to do a fundraiser. I said, okay, what are we going to do? And she goes, well, I think we should do it at Lot 61, which at the time was like Amy Sacco. It was one of her first bar restaurants that was super cool. Everybody wanted to go there. You couldn't always get in. But so if we did a charity fundraiser and people just had to pay a hundred bucks or whatever, then we could fill the room, we could fund the artist and everybody would have a great time. More importantly to Vanessa, everybody would have a great time. Yeah. And more importantly to you, you were helping an artist. Right, exactly. And it worked. And everybody was like, wow, this is the greatest party. And I I got into Lot 61 and I feel so good. Like, I feel so great. And I did this thing. I was sponsoring the arts. And so Vanessa has this incredible ability to understand how to bring a group of people together and make sure that they have the best time. Like if you get an invitation to Vanessa's house for dinner, like you never, ever, ever say no because (laughs) you're going to sit next to somebody super interesting Mm -hmm. and you're going to have funny conversations and everything's going to feel like warm and casual and easy. And you're going to leave being like, oh, that was, that was great. And that really was PR 25 years ago. Absolutely. It was really that connection and, and that storytelling to some degree, but public relations has changed so much Mm. in the past over two decades since you started. So talk to me about how you've kept up with that because I've seen a lot of people, we're probably around the same age, I've seen a lot of PR companies go under because Mm -hmm. they did not evolve and they did not continue to keep up with everything that was happening. So what do you think it's about the company that you two founded that's been able to sustain all of these changes over the years? And what would you say to entrepreneurs out there who are looking to get into PR at this point Mm -hmm. in their careers? such a good question. So I think part of our secret sauce, which isn't a secret, so I'll tell you, is the (laughs) blend of exactly what I just described, which is this, you have to always keep humans at the center of the story. You have to remember that you're connecting humans either to each other or to an idea or to a concept or to a product or to a place or to an experience, right? You have to remember that. Mm -hmm. And that is how we started. And that is the core of the business. Now, the way I look at it is we just have a lot more tools to do that. Mm -hmm. Our tool used to be stories in written 
publications, Mm -hmm. right? Magazines, newspapers, radio, TV, things like that. Those things exist still in the tiniest, tiniest way and not always the most effective. Now you have so many other tools, right? You have influencer, you have digital media, and now you can track things in a different way. You can really in real time see if you are having an effect. You can see how people are responding. I would say for us, the approach has remained the same in that it is about connection, Mm -hmm. but we have this gigantic toolbox that you really have to continually keep up with. We are so lucky that we have an incredible team. We have people across the world in London, New York and LA who all work in the digital space and who are digitally native, right? I remember, as you probably do, when I got my first email and I was like, well, what the hell do I do with this? Because nobody else I know has one. Exactly. You know, I can write to myself and my colleagues. It and also that used to it. take a very long time. Do you remember? Yeah, the modems and yes. the dial-up. And the, sound. I mean, Gosh, that we're was, really dating ourselves. I know, really. We'll get off let's, this let's stop that. Let's move. <laughs> let's keep moving. No, and so so I think that's really it for me is, is maintaining like that worldview for us, mm-hmm. but taking advantage of all of the tools and all of the wisdom and the understanding that comes up through this next generation of people who work with us because I am not digitally native. Like, tell me, explain to me like, oh, you know, that's a marketing message and you don't mind that they're marketing to you if they're doing it well. Oh, interesting. I'm offended by the marketing messages. I don't want people blatantly marketing to me. Yes. They don't mind. They just insist that you do it well. Mm-hmm. They insist that you feed them content that they're interested in. So it's a totally different perspective. For all of the entrepreneurs who are listening out there, mm-hmm. you founded this agency over 20 years ago. There must have been some real hits to your confidence over the year. <laughs> and I love hearing the bad stories, oftentimes more than the good, because mm. it gives you perspective. And I hope it it welcomes everyone into the pool, because obviously we all talk about failure so much, but yeah. it's not even that. It's really the sort of chinks in the armor that you get over mm-hmm. the course of your career and your life that build confidence love to hear anything you would really oh, to share. Yeah. Like the, the God, worst, the There better. are so many. <laughs> um, and I love in your new book that you really go there and you talk about the things that are not Instagram perfect. And yeah. that because I think now it's really important for us as women to reveal and celebrate our imperfection and to celebrate our mistakes yeah. and to celebrate that those are the places where we really do learn. So one example, I'll give I'll give you two that really knocked me and gave me a moment of pause that I really, truly needed. So one of those is that I can't remember what year it was. I think it was maybe 2004, 2005. BPCM was on fire. We were those people. We were doing it. We were doing so well. Maybe it was a little later. I can't remember. It was later because we had made it through the first recession. We had made it through that 2008 recession and we came back more profitable than ever. We were able to like bring everybody back, bring everybody back to full salaries. You know, it was was just this real, it was a confidence moment, right? And I think in in confidence moments, you also have to look for, instead of just riding high, you have to look for where you're inflating Mm. because that's important too. Not that you should deflate yourself, but you have to be, look at yourself with complete and total honesty, right? And that's not imposter syndrome. That is just looking and saying like, wow, this is going so well. How do I take this and harness it in a way that's real, that isn't just about... 
And that is not what we did. We, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can see the arc coming. And because things were going so well, we had all these clients who came to us and said, do this for us in Europe. Take this way that you are doing things and do it for us in Europe. And so we had five or six of the biggest American fashion clients who were like, take Here this European American partnership, make it work the other way, take us to Europe and let's open up this market. And so we opened up an office in London and opened up an office in Paris at the same time. Oh, Everyone said, oh my God, opening another office is so hard. And we were like, oh no, but like LA was great. Like that's, that's fantastic. Well, we had a partner there who cared as much as we cared, who had run an agency before. And so London actually went pretty well, but the differences between the British and the Americans are not, there are certainly accent differences in terms of the way we work or what's important to us or how things operate. But it's not summarily different. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not an entirely different way of being. My mom's British, so right. I nod. Yeah, I agree. absolutely. And I, I, I love her amazing voice as your intro <laughs> to your my podcast. intro to my podcast, yes. Um, the French market is completely different. Yeah. You know, there's a different way of working. There's a different attitude toward work. There's a different idea of what client service looks like. There is a different idea of what success looks like. Mm-hmm. And we were woefully unprepared for that. We were on such a high from such a success. And London was immediately successful and had the same kinds of things. We had little things, but we had an incredible person running it and it was wonderful. But Paris was really, really hard. Mm. And eventually we ended up closing it. Um, I often say in business, if you find it's a round peg in a square hole immediately, it never changes. And, I and can't that's tell you correct. how many partnership deals I killed oh because of that. Please, please, please make it a bumper sticker. Send yeah. it to everybody who <laughs> listens to the podcast. It, it is, is the merchandise for Claim Your Confidence. It Round is. peg, square hole, let it go. Let it go. You know, you have so much ego invested in it in yeah. that way. And you have so much of your own hubris invested in it. Yeah. So that was a real learning one for us. And we've been so, you know, we've had so many opportunities to expand again and actually... What we've chosen to do in London, what we did is we merged our agency, we merged BPCM with our now business partner, Julian's agency, Modus, which he's had for 30 years. Fun fact is that everyone who ever ran BPCM London had at one point been number two at Modus. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so you were just poaching we just, and then finally We actually <laughs> didn't even poach from them. They would go somewhere else and then they wanted that same experience again. And so we, you know, I have dear friends who run agencies in Paris and in Japan and in China, who I trust, who I know that it's that partner on the ground mm-hmm. who wants it to work as badly as I do, and that they are going to show up and make sure that that this happens perfectly and that the client is serviced perfectly because you really need an owner for that. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that was one thing. About nine or 10 years ago, when I have what I call my sustainability epiphany, I was so sure that this is what I was supposed to do. And I was so sure, I was so on fire and so caught up in it, but I was distracted by it. It was so important to me. I was distracted by it. And I was really concerned because we have an agency that deals with the world's largest and most powerful fashion brands. I was really deeply concerned that what was going to happen is that I was going to endanger the company by speaking about sustainability. And so... I think that was like a nuanced thing about confidence because I had to come to a place where 
I needed to create my own language mm -hmm. and my own set of structures for how I could do both, for how I could talk about sustainability, how I could advocate for things that I knew would make this industry better, healthier, more profitable, and better for the planet. And at the same time, not put my own company out of business mm -hmm. and not, you know, there's a lot of unawareness in the fashion industry at that point. So it's not like, it wasn't like an evil empire. Mm -hmm. And so it was in sustainability at the time, it was either you're totally ignoring the problem or you're calling everybody out and saying how awful everyone is. And for those people who are listening right now, Carrie, when you talk about your sustainability moment where this sort of epiphany that happened, and I listened to a number of podcasts that you were on, and I've also done obviously a lot of research about your career, but this happened as you said, you're working with the top fashion agencies in the world. And yet at the same time, you're coming to this understanding of how much damage these same industries yeah. that people love and these brands that have heritage and mm -hmm. legacy are doing to the environment. So it really is you're at this crossroads where you're the person promoting them, but you also have the opportunity yeah. to make that change. And I know there, there have been so many people over the past decade, especially, who've had this similar epiphany, whether it be through the lens of what they can do with their company or how they're starting a company and can impact change through that. So can you give anyone who's listening a couple of tips for if they find that in themselves mm. and they want to make that change, but they are in a similar situation where they could also be impacting the company they're yeah. working for, what can they do? Like, how did you, as somebody who is so well-versed in PR, how did mm. you message that to people? What did you do? Well, the first thing is that I had to set up my own structure or way of thinking about this. You know, I can be very impatient. I can be very impulsive. Like a lot of other talented entrepreneurs, I have a good healthy dose of ADHD. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I want things to happen immediately and yeah. now. And and I had to kind of sit back and think about how I could do this and have all the things line up the way I needed them to. So what we developed was this philosophy that we are in no judgment zone. Mm -hmm. So because we had been a safe space for the industry for our entire careers, so why would I throw that away? Mm -hmm. Because if I can use that access and I can use that trust to help steer people in the right direction, mm -hmm. that might be the most powerful thing I can do. Yeah, absolutely. So when big companies would come to us, my requirement is that I am gonna be in no judgment zone, but you have to come with what I call corporate humility. So to say like, I don't know if we're getting this right. I wanna understand the full problem mm -hmm. and I'm open to the solutions and I will commit to the solutions help me chunk this out into ways that it's not trying to like swallow the whole ocean at once. Do you find that people can actually do that? I mean, that's really interesting to think about corporate humility because it is hard to be humble about things, especially when you've been the leader of the pack or yeah. at the top of the heap. Yeah. You know, again, organizations are basically groups of humans, right. right? Yeah. So it's really about finding the right humans inside an organization. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times my work personally is not as much about like giving them, teaching them sustainability lessons. Mm -hmm. It's about teaching them how to talk to their CEO. Mm -hmm. It's about teaching them how to navigate those corporate waters with confidence and to get their messages heard. So actually it is taking what I've been doing for many decades 
and just applying that human lens almost in an even more pointed way. I found in the earlier part of my sustainability career, sustainability officers loved talking to me because I spoke average human, but I also spoke sciencey, white papery, technical information, sustainability person, right? And they couldn't believe that like somebody who dressed like I did and owned a hairbrush would like could 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 have these conversa- conversations with them. And I found that the most useful I could be to the I was learning so much from them mm-hmm. from a technical perspective. I found that my um my reciprocity in that relationship was to help them carry their messages in a way that they were going to be received. And I love this story of how this all happened for you in such an organic, but also motherly way, if you will, (laughs) because, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had two children and then you were pregnant with twins and you went into bed rest. And that's where you really started to do this deep dive. Yeah. So my dear friend, Kara Smith, who's now at Accenture, she had been invited by Muhammad Yunus to start the campus of GCU in New York, which was going to all be around sustainability and fashion. She was the first person who said sustainability to me. I had one daughter, actually, and then I had twins, which didn't seem like a big deal to me. I was New Yorkering it. I was, you know, just <laughs> yeah. trudging to the get city. That double, like, no stroller, problem. Baby yeah, yeah, it's yeah. going to be fine. Yes. This is just logistics, and I'm great at those. Um <laughs> And Kara and I were deep in it. We were trying to figure out who was doing what and how we could help and what were the real problems and who was working on the problems. Kara's amazing because she's always like, let's not all work on the same thing. Let's get the people who are doing a really good job, take them as experts, use what they're doing, and then let's work on the things that nobody's working on. Such a good leader. Oh, such a good leader. So we were, you know, doing all of that. And all of a sudden, there was a heat wave. And I went into early labor, like full on at the hospital. Oh my gosh, how scary. Many, many weeks early. That's a totally different podcast. But I would, you know, it was this thing where we're just like, (laughs) oh God. And they said, bed rest immediately. And I said, well, what does, what does that mean? And they're like, like a real New Yorker. You're like, but when you say bed rest, that's like 10 minutes before. Yeah. Yeah, No, that means I can go to the office, but I keep my office door closed. Don't wear my heels. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they were like, no, no, no. In bed. Right now, we're going to call it modified bed rest, which means you can be on your couch for most of the day, but you can't work. And I was like, oh, what's the difference between modified bed rest and bed rest? And they said a bedpan. So oh. I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm going to take this modified is. bed yes. rest seriously, but I don't have a brain that can do that. And so I, and I was obsessed with this sustainability idea. Mm-hmm. And interestingly in fashion, fashion is such an interesting um, macrocosm because it's not just one thing, mm-hmm. right? It's agriculture because cotton, wool, all these fibers come from either agriculture or any synthetic fiber comes from petroleum. So then you're you're looking at the oil industry. Mm-hmm. Then there's the transportation and shipping. There's the supply chain. There's how things get moved from one place to another. There's dying. There's finishing. There's the issues of labor. It on was and on and I mean, on. Yeah. It's it's this incredible tangle. And I just went deeper and deeper. And I taught myself how to read white papers. I almost felt like I was learning to become a lawyer or giving myself my own MBA. It was. I would be so fascinated. And every time there were those little citations at the bottom, I would look up that person and I would, maybe they'd have a webinar or maybe they would have, and webinars weren't really a thing in 2014. Yeah, you know, no. it was, there was no Zoom. There was pre-pandemic. Yeah, watching things on video. So, <laughs> you know, you'd get a grainy video of somebody speaking at an academic conference that was on someone's weird YouTube channel or, 
you know, I was calling college switchboards and asking if I could speak to people. And that, you know, funny story is that even Goodstein, who's the dean at Bard, where I'm an advisor to their sustainability MBA, had written this book in the 90s and it's brilliant. And he was cited in something. And I was like, oh my God, I found him. He's the head of the Center for Environmental Policy at Bard. I'm going to give him a call. And I just called the switchboard and he was one of the only people who called me back and was sort of like head scratching, like, who is this one? He's like, like, no one has ever read this book except for you. (laughs) He was like, I'm just so curious. Like, how did you find me? And I was like, a citation in someone's white paper. (laughs) That's amazing. But so you do all of this and then you go back, you have the twins. Obviously, that's a whole nother story too. But you bring this idea back and to Vanessa and the whole team's credit, Mm -hmm. you guys found a way to move forward with this. And this is really what you're doing now. Yeah. And and this is this is the beauty of having partners that you trust. Yeah. Is that I went to them and I said, You guys, I now understand that this is what I'm supposed to do. I know nothing as much as I know this. And I think we can do it. And I had a coach at the time named Eric Horowitz, who's fantastic. And he said to me, like, you keep talking about sustainability. He's like, I don't understand. Can you not make money with this? I was like, oh, no, no. I think there's a ton of money to be made. And I think there's a business to be made. And I think he goes, okay, so either do it or you have to shut up. Yeah. You got to do one or the the two. Because it's all you talk about. And you're not doing it. We talked about this before the podcast yeah. too, about passion, yeah. about finding your passion. Yeah. And we were speaking about how you mentor a lot of young women. Yes. And they often come to you and they are telling you all the things that they have. And you say back to them, the issue is not what you're doing. It's that you're not passionate about yeah. what you're doing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we've invested so much in our careers, in our skill set, yeah. right? And we think our skill set is only applicable to what we are doing in that moment. Yeah my two big pieces of advice are like, you don't have to throw everything away. I mean, I mentor MBA students all the time. And there's one who actually graduated from Columbia and she's working with us now. And she had come to me to say like, I don't know what to do. I was in marketing for consumer goods and fashion and I loved it. And I'm really super passionate about it, but I just got my sustainability MBA. And now I know how to read LCAs and white papers. And I know how to talk about carbon capture and I know how to talk about these things. So I feel like I need to go get a job doing that. And I was like, no, 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 no. The sustainability world needs all of your skills from over here. Yes. Take all of these skills from over here, but yeah. just just turn the lens. Yeah. And so that's always my thing is just turn the lens toward what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be like you have a job, you know, at a book publisher doing something, but what you'd really like to be doing is doing that for Formula One. That's not, you're not going to leave and then go to Formula One the next day. You're going to like figure out how to make those inroads and figure yeah. out how to shift things and how, how to do that. I say pull up the lifeboat next to your boat until the lifeboat gets so big that yes. you can just jump right over. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> Take off on your yacht. You the know? other thing I tell people to do all the time and anybody I mentor, I say, who's on your personal board of directors, mm-hmm. right? Who, uh, I'll be on it. I'm nominating myself. Mm-hmm. But who makes up the rest of the personal board of directors? Such an important thing. Yeah. Such an important thing. I talked about this with my friend, Mary Giuliani, who was mm. on for, we did a live call-in show, which was a lot of fun. And one thing that we talked about so much was the power of female friendships mm. and surrounding yourself with people who are also not only supportive, but are doing great things in their own world because mm. they are always looking at you rooting for you mm-hmm. because they're already living their fulfilled, passionate life. And so when you look for that personal board of directors, be it male, female, whatever you want that to look Mm -hmm. like, 
just remember you want people who, A, don't have the skill set that you have, mm-hmm. as you said earlier, because I think that's such an important thing. You don't need someone who's good at what you're good at. You yeah. need someone who's good at what you're bad at, let's mm-hmm. be honest. But then the other point I think is surrounding yourself with people who are living that passionate dream of their own. So that yeah. they're looking at you, cheering for you in a fulfilled way and not looking at you thinking, I wish that was me. Yeah. Because that's I'm, a very important distinction. And I'm going to add one more critical thing to that, which is as human beings, every human being shares a trait, which is that we thrive when we feel seen. Mm-hmm. We light up when we feel seen. So I think, and whether you're male or female, but find people who see you, mm-hmm. who when you tell them an idea, you tell them something even if they have comment for you or criticism for you or what they are, they see you. They are passionate about you. They want to tell other people about you. They see your brilliance even when you're not seeing it. Yeah. Because when you're at a stage like this that we're talking about, which is you are in a place and you want to get to another place, you 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 are not happy in this like hermit crab shell that is too small for you mm-hmm. and you need to be like a little naked work hermit crab Running walking around. toward that <laughs> giant shell yeah. or that bigger lifeboat, you need somebody who's like, no, 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 that's amazing. Definitely let go of that little tiny shell. It doesn't fit. I'm going to, I see you. Yeah. Like, I, I see you. Oh my God. You know what's brilliant about you? And when you are feeling that, that is part of building that confidence. Absolutely. And something you can take with you forever. Yeah. All right. My final question for you, mom of four. Yeah. What are you doing to raise confident children? Also, how do you get through the day? But you have to answer that on the podcast. (laughs) One tip for all of us out there raising children. What Um, are you doing as you look at your children to make sure that they have confidence? Okay. Um, My business partner, Allie Takeman, when I had just had my first daughter, I really struggled. I was somebody who never thought I was going to have kids. And so then I had this kid and she's amazing and she's a baby and I can't relate. And I... I'm at home and I'm constantly calling my ex to say like, oh, is she okay? And, and did you feed her? And did and then I would get home and I would be at that time on my Blackberry. Yeah. You know, I'd be holding her with one arm and I'd be texting typing. back and typing and Breaking whatever. Breaking thumbs, yeah. And um, I really broke down and I just said, I'm not doing anything well. And Allie said, it's because you're not keeping your head where your feet are. Which means that, and actually we, we discovered like the, uh, the origins of that was that she had seen Kira Sedgwick interviewed and Kira Sedgwick said that. So now that is the piece of information that I give to everybody. I, I just recently like slacked it on our mom Slack channel at, at BPCM. And you wouldn't think that that is something that is about confidence. But what I will tell you about children and I, what I will tell you about your employees, if they feel that when you are with them, you are only with them you are building their confidence. Yeah, They can trust you. Trust builds confidence. They feel seen. Feeling seen gives you confidence. If I am with my children and I am on my phone, they know that they don't have me. Mm-hmm. And that creates a lot of internal questioning of why. Why can't I get her attention? Why am I not more important than the phone? Mm-hmm. Same with my employees. If somebody comes into my office to say like, Hey, can we talk about this issue that I'm having? I will take my phone. I will purposely, I will shut the screen down. Mm-hmm. I will take my phone and put it in my bag and look them in the eye and give them that moment. Cause even sometimes I'm only going to have seven minutes to do that with them. Yeah. 
but those are the most important seven minutes that I can spend. With and them. with my kids, same thing. It's not easy to get me on an evening or a weekend. You have to try really hard yeah. um, because that is my time for them. And you said it earlier, humans just want to be seen, right? Humans want to be seen. That's and that, base. yeah, and that develops people with a beautiful mindset and people who do that for other people. And we are, you know, that's what I want to teach my kids yeah. is be present. No matter who you're with, be present. Yeah. So well, thank you for being present with oh, me in you. New Sand Studios. It's been so fun to have you here. Tell us where we can find you. Uh, bpcm.com uh, or at bpcm on Instagram. Well, I cannot thank you enough, Carrie Ellen Phillips, for being here today with me. I know we will all be watching to see what you do next, especially in the new sustainability role that, I guess it's not even new, but the sustainability <laughs> role that you've been championing for many years. I'd love to thank our listeners for tuning in once again. It's always such a pleasure to be here. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. I'd like to thank Rockefeller Plaza and Joe, our amazing producer, who makes sure that this all gets wrapped up in a nice bow for you. Please stop by anytime you're at One Rockefeller Plaza. If you stop by to see the Today Show or have lunch somewhere on our beautiful campus here, I'd love to see you. And in the meantime, I want you to think about one thing. What is your passion and what are you doing to find it? As Carrie said, you don't have to find it through anything but a different lens right now. But DM us. Let us know what you think. Put it out into the universe. We want to know. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I look forward to being with you again next week. This is Lydia Finette on Claim Your Confidence in Newsstand Studios. Studios.